Section 8 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern Volume 6 by Various Authors Section 8 On the Love of Good Living by Bria Savarin I have consulted the dictionaries under the word gourmandise, and am by no means satisfied with what I find. The love of good living seems to be constantly confounded with gluttony and veracity. Whence I infer that our lexicographers, however otherwise estimable, are not to be classed with those good fellows amongst learned men, who can put away gracefully a wing of partridge, and then, by raising the little finger, wash it down with a glass of Lafitte or Clos-Rougeot. They have utterly forgot that social love of good eating, which combines in one Athenian elegance, Roman luxury, and Parisian refinement. It implies discretion to arrange, skill to prepare. It appreciates energetically and judges profoundly. It is a precious quality almost deserving to rank as a virtue, and is very certainly the source of much unqualified enjoyment. Gourmandise, or the love of good living, is an impassioned, rational, and habitual preference for whatever flatters the sense of taste. It is opposed to excess. Therefore, every man who eats to indigestion, or makes himself drunk, runs the risk of being erased from the list of its votaries. Gourmandise also comprises a love for dainties or titbits, which is merely an analogous preference limited to light, delicate, or small dishes, to pastry, and so forth. It is a modification allowed in favour of the women, or men, of feminine tastes. Regarded from any point of view, the love of good living deserves nothing but praise and encouragement. Physically, it is the result and proof of the digestive organs being healthy and perfect. Morally, it shows implicit resignation to the commands of nature who in ordering man to eat that he may live, gives him appetite to invite, flavour to encourage, and pleasure to reward. From the political economist's point of view, the love of good living is a tie between nations, uniting them by the interchange of various articles of food which are in constant use. 
Hence the voyage from pole to pole of wine, sugars, fruits, and so forth. What else sustains the hope and emulation of that crowd of fishermen, huntsmen, gardeners, and others, who daily stock the most sumptuous larders with the results of their skill and labour? What else supports the industrious army of cooks, pastry-cooks, confectioners, and many other food-preparers, with all their various assistants? These various branches of industry derive their support in a great measure from the largest incomes, but they also rely upon the daily wants of all classes. As society is at present constituted, it is almost impossible to conceive of a race living solely on bread and vegetables. Such a nation would infallibly be conquered by the armies of some flesh-eating race, like the Hindus, who have been the prey of all those one after another who cared to attack them, or else it would be converted by the cooking of the neighbouring nations, as ancient history records of the Boeotians, who acquired a love for good living after the battle of Leuctra. Good living opens out great resources for replenishing the public purse. It brings contributions to town dues, to the custom-house, and other indirect contributions. Everything we eat is taxed, and there is no exchequer that is not substantially supported by lovers of good living. Shall we speak of that swarm of cooks, who have for ages been annually leaving France, to improve foreign nations in the art of good living? Most of them succeed, and in obedience to an instinct which never dies in a Frenchman's heart, bring back to their country the fruits of their economy. The sum thus imported is greater than might be supposed, and therefore they, like the others, will be honoured by posterity. But if nations were grateful, then Frenchmen, above all other races, ought to raise a temple and altars to gourmandise. By the Treaty of November 1815, the Allies imposed upon France the condition of paying thirty million sterling in three years, besides claims for compensation and various requisitions, amounting to nearly as much more. The apprehension, or rather certainty, became general that a national bankruptcy must ensue, more especially as the money was to be paid in specie. Alas, said all who had anything to lose, as they saw the fatal tumbrel pass to be filled in the Rue Vivienne. There is our money emigrating in a lump. Next year we shall fall on our knees before a crown piece. We are about to fall into the condition of a ruined man. Speculations of every kind will fail. It will be impossible to borrow. There will be nothing but weakness, exhaustion, civil death. These terrors were proved false by the result, and to the great astonishment of all engaged in financial matters, the payments were made without difficulty, credit rose, loans were eagerly caught at, and during all the time this superpurgation lasted, 
the balance of exchange was in favour of france in other words more money came into the country than went out of it what is the power that came to our assistance who is the divinity that worked this miracle the love of good living when the britons germans teutons Cimmerians and Scythians made their eruption into France. They brought a rare veracity, and stomachs of no ordinary capacity. They did not long remain satisfied with the official cheer which a forced hospitality had to supply them with. They aspired to enjoyments of greater refinement, and soon the Queen City was nothing but a huge refectory everywhere they were seen eating these intruders in the restaurants the eating-houses the inns the taverns the stalls and even in the streets they gorged themselves with flesh fish game truffles pastry and especially with fruit they drank with an avidity equal to their appetite and always ordered the most expensive wines in the hope of finding in them some enjoyment hitherto unknown and seemed quite astonished when they were disappointed superficial observers did not know what to think of this menagerie without bounds or limits but your genuine parisian laughed and rubbed his hands we have them now said he and to-night they'll have paid us back more than was counted out to them this morning from the public treasury that was a lucky time for those who provide for the enjoyments of the sense of taste varay made his fortune Accard laid the foundation of his beauvilliers made a third and madame sulot whose shop in the palais royal was a mere box of a place sold as many as twelve thousand tarts a day the effect still lasts foreigners flow in from all quarters of europe to renew during peace the delightful habit which they contracted during the war they must come to paris and when they are there they must be regaled at any price if our funds are in favour it is due not so much to the higher interest they pay as to the instinctive confidence which foreigners cannot help placing in a people amongst whom every lover of good living finds so much happiness love of good living is by no means unbecoming in women it agrees with the delicacy of their organization and serves as a compensation for some pleasures which they are obliged to abstain from and for some hardships to which nature seems to have condemned them there is no more pleasant sight than a pretty gourmand under arms a napkin is nicely adjusted one of her hands rests on the table, the other carries to her mouth little morsels artistically carved, or the wing of a partridge which must be picked. Her eyes sparkle, her lips are glossy, her talk is cheerful, all her movements graceful, nor is there lacking some spice of the coquetry which accompanies all that women do with so many advantages she is irresistible and cato the censor himself could not help yielding to the influence the love of good living is in some sort instinctive in women 
because it is favourable to beauty. It has been proved, by a series of rigorously exact observations, that by a succulent, delicate, and choice regimen, the external appearances of age are kept away for a long time. It gives more brilliancy to the eye, more freshness to the skin, more support to the muscles, and as it is certain in physiology that wrinkles, those formidable enemies of beauty, are caused by the depression of muscle, it is equally true that, other things being equal, those who understand eating are comparatively four years younger than those ignorant of that science. Painters and sculptors are deeply impenetrated with this truth, for in representing those who practice abstinence by choice or duty as misers or anchorites, they always give them the pallor of disease, the leanness of misery, and the wrinkles of decrepitude. Good living is one of the main links of society, by gradually extending that spirit of conviviality, by which different classes are daily brought closer together, and welded into one whole, by animating the conversation, and rounding off the angles of conventional inequality. To the same cause we can also ascribe all the efforts a host makes to receive his guests properly, as well as their gratitude for his pains so well bestowed. What disgrace should ever be heaped upon those senseless feeders who, with unpardonable indifference, swallow down morsels of the rarest quality, or gulp with unrighteous carelessness some fine-flavoured and sparkling wine. As a general maxim, whoever shows a desire to please will be certain of having a delicate compliment paid him by every well-bred man. Again, when shared, the love of good living has the most marked influence on the happiness of the conjugal state. A wedded pair with this taste in common have once a day at least a pleasant opportunity of meeting, for even when they sleep apart, and a great many do so, they at least eat at the same table, they have a subject of conversation which is ever new, they speak not only of what they are eating, but also of what they have eaten, or will eat, of dishes which are in vogue, of novelties, etc. Everybody knows that a familiar chat is delightful. Music, no doubt, has powerful attractions for those who are fond of it, but one must set about it. It is an exertion. Besides, one sometimes has a cold, the music is mislaid, the instruments are out of tune, one has a fit of the blues, or it is a forbidden day, whereas, in the other case, a common one summons the spouses to table, the same inclination keeps them there, they naturally show each other these little attentions, as a proof of their wish to oblige, and the mode of conducting their meals has a great share in the happiness of their lives. This observation, though new in France, has not escaped the notice of Richardson, the English moralist. He has worked out the idea, in his novel, Pamela, by painting the different manner in which two married couples finish their day, 
the first husband is a lord an eldest son and therefore heir to all the family property the second is his younger brother the husband of pamela who has been disinherited on account of his marriage and lives on half pay in a state but little removed from abject poverty the lord and lady enter their dining-room by different doors and salute each other coldly though they have not met the whole day before sitting down at a table which is magnificently covered surrounded by lackeys in brilliant liveries they help themselves in silence and eat without pleasure as soon however as the servants have withdrawn a sort of conversation is begun between the pair which quickly shows a bitter tone passing into a regular fight and they rise from the table in a fury of anger and go off to their separate apartments to reflect upon the pleasures of a single life the younger brother on the contrary is on reaching his unpretentious home received with a gentle loving heartiness and the fondest caresses he sits down to a frugal meal but everything he eats is excellent and how could it be otherwise it is pamela herself who has prepared it all they eat with enjoyment talking of their affairs their plans their love for each other a half bottle of madeira serves to prolong their repast and conversation and soon after they retire together to forget in sleep their present hardships and to dream of a better future all honour to the love of good living such as it is the purpose of this book to describe so long as it does not come between men and their occupations or duties for as all the debaucheries of a sardanopolis cannot bring disrespect upon womankind in general so the excesses of vitellius need not make us turn our backs upon a well-appointed banquet should the love of good living pass into gluttony veracity intemperance it then loses its name and advantages escapes from our jurisdiction and falls within that of the moralist to ply it with good counsel or of the physician who will cure it by his remedies end of section eight